This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. How are your limbo dancing skills? Rather good. <laughs> Pretty good. Let's see what a cock-up I make of this. Yeah. Bring back handheld mics, I say. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure. I had that pleasure of meeting John about a year ago when I interviewed him on the occasion of the, the to promote the stage play of The Boy in Striped Pajamas, which is probably the, your best-known title, would you say? I guess, yeah. Good. Uh, but so, far. <laughs> so far. That was then, this is now. But he comes to us with a very different book tonight, A History of Loneliness, which as much, I think, is about contemporary Ireland as it is about the characters in your piece. What was the sort of, what was your inspiration for this novel? Well, it, it started actually a few years ago with um, a story that my father told me. I don't know if many of you are familiar with Dublin, but there's a, a church in Dublin called Inchicor Church. And at the back of the church, there's a grotto, which is a replica of the grotto at Lourdes. And my dad, for many years, has gone, when he drives past that church, he stops, he goes in, says a prayer. And one night, a few years back, he, it was nighttime, he was passing by, and he stopped to go in. Um, it was very dark, the moon was out, and as he turned the corner towards the grotto, he could hear this weeping, wailing sound. And he was kind of frightened, you know, he's thinking this is, seems a bit scary. But he continued around anyway, and what he saw was a, a priest lying face down on the ground, crying. And then he heard another voice, and he saw in the corner of the grotto there was an old lady who was also crying. And for whatever reason, my dad decided that this old lady was the mother of this young priest. And there they were, crying. And he turned around, and he left. You know, he found the whole thing a bit too, you know, tales of the unexpected or something. Um, but he told me this story a few years ago, and immediately I thought, that's, that's an opening scene for a novel. And when I was um, thinking about starting this, because I'd never written about Ireland before, it felt like that would be the moment where Ireland changes, where it goes from being a country which is ruled by and dominated by the authority of the church to a country which is uh, much more secular and which um, has turned against the church so much. So what about the, the a history of loneliness, a very, a very arresting title, um, where... It's presumably referring to your central character, Odrin. Now, tell us about him. Well, it refers to him, and it refers to priests in general, I think. Um, and, I mean, I knew a lot of priests growing up. I, 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 uh, I grew up as a Catholic in Dublin. My house was, on one side, our next-door neighbour was the parish priest, and on the other side, there was eight nuns. <laughs> um, so, um, and I was an altar boy. I was the head altar boy, which I was, uh, I was very proud of. I went, thank you. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, I went to a Catholic school run by priests. And so when I thought about priests, I thought about all of them, the idea of loneliness, actually. And as I was interviewing priests in advance of writing this book, as talking to them, one thing that I came up against time and again, which, you know, I hadn't thought about too much before, was how lonely it is um, in that job. Now, it's lonely because the church makes a decision to, to force them to be lonely. You know, and that's another, another question, maybe. But... Um, so I, I came at it from, from, from that perspective. Odrin himself um, is... He changed from my original perception of him as the book developed. Because what I wanted to do was, as somebody who had, been, who had spent many years feeling great anger towards the church, I, I felt that what I had to do was write a character who was essentially good, essentially decent. And that I would try and explore the history of the Catholic Church in Ireland and the sexual abuse um, that went on for so many years through the eyes of somebody who himself is not a criminal. And that's where I started from, but of course he changed as it goes along because it's a first-person narrative. And what I found was if I hadn't called the book A History of Loneliness and if Ian Banks hadn't already used the title, I might have called it Complicity because complicity is the real subject when it comes to the Catholic Church in Ireland. It's the, no the recognition that the majority of priests did not commit criminal acts. But the vast majority, if they were honest with themselves, knew what was going on. And I realized that Odrin knew what was going on. I'd, I don't plan out novels in advance. You know, I, I start with an idea and I see where it takes me. And I realized as it developed that actually, in some ways, the villain of the piece is not the, uh, 
the, there is an abuser in the book, and of course he is a, a, a bad character, but the villain of the piece is really Odrin himself because he turns his head away. He doesn't, um, he, he doesn't speak out when he should speak out. And everybody in Ireland during all those years, not just the priests, but the lay people, parents going to schools, you know, and um, where their children have been beaten up or abused and saying, oh, well, you know, if it happened, you probably deserved it. We were all, well, not my generation, but before it, everybody was complicit. And um, so that's where Odin comes from. So remind me, the, the celibacy law is imposed on priests because they kind of, they are, represent Christ himself. There's a kind of, um, I'm trying to think of the technical term. In other words, they have a bit of Christ in them as, as part of being a priest. They represent uh, his, presumably his with asexuality or his mm. non-sexuality. So if you had a priest who was also, you know, a fully practicing hetero or homosexual, uh, that's another matter, um, somehow this connection would be... Am I talking rubbish here? But no, I, I think that there they There is a technical term for this, isn't there's, there? There's, there's two aspects of it. The first is, I think, in the church feels that, uh, that the priest should be just married and a nun to the church, and to be distracted from that will be um, a mistake. Of course, that wasn't the case for the first thousand years or so, mm. um, and it changed. The second thing is, to allow a priest to marry... The, the most important thing that would happen if a priest was allowed to marry would be the empowerment of women. And the Catholic Church traditionally, and particularly in Ireland, um, is frightened of one thing, um, and that's women. Well, we all are. But, um, <laughs> um, but they, are, they have always been frightened of women, I think, and that's why they don't have women priests. They don't allow priests to marry. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not telling Pope Francis how to do his job, but... Um, but here I'm going to. Um, I, I think one of the things that would solve so many of the problems in the church would be allowing priests to marry and allowing women to become priests. It would seem sensible to me that everybody, everybody in this room, is better in life, is better at their jobs, is better on a day-to-day basis when we, when we are loved and when we are able to love. It's, it's only a good thing. And to deny somebody the ability to find that um, seems to, to be a, a corruption of what we're actually here for and and how we got here in the first place. So I don't understand why they, they don't do that. Uh, I think it would bring a lot more people, it would, it would modernize the church, it would bring a lot more people into it. And, you know, when I was growing up, women had one role in the church, and that was to clean it. That was it. You know, the, 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 the men would be allowed to go up and do the readings on Sunday, um, the women could do the flowers, and when everybody left to go to the pub, um, they could take the hoovers out. And that hasn't changed very much to this day. So do you believe that celibacy actually has a sort of cause and effect that it did cause child abuse because of, if you like, feelings that had, could not be liberated under the celibacy rule? I, I do, and it's, it's a somewhat controversial um, point of view, but my feeling is if you go back to, say, the 50s, um, you know, one of the characters, in the, the, the young men in this book who become priests, become priests in the 60s and 70s. Um, you go back, say, 50s, 60s and 70s, in a country where there was no talk of sex at all. You know, nobody had sex in Ireland. And, you know, there was also a very different time. You know, there was no internet. No, nobody knew anything about anything. Nobody, when everybody got married, they were exploring that for the very first time. Um, and these young men, 16, 17 years old, were being put into seminaries because they had the mother's vocation, and they were being put in with no experience of life whatsoever, no experience of girls or boys or anything. Um, and then they wake up one day, and they're 30, and suddenly the, the feelings that most people have when they're in their teens and the way you explore that are there, but there's no way that they can explore it, and their minds have been literally perverted. And it's not that they're looking for children. They were look, to my mind, they were looking for vulnerable people, people who they could get away with it. Um, with. And who's the most vulnerable? It's children. I think it's kind of silly to think that every priest who abused children was by their very nature a pedophile. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think a lot of them were abused themselves as children. I think they had no possible... This is not to justify what they did. Don't get me wrong. But it's... I think you have to look at how they got to that point in the first place. If you're going to stop these things happening, it's, it's all very well to just condemn everybody and say everybody should be strung up. But understanding it and trying to figure out why um, is much more useful. 
Now, I don't think today young people going in would have the same experiences because they are much more savvy about the world. They understand the world and they probably have explored. I mean, a priest told me that they won't really allow 18-year-olds or something in now into a seminary because they would say, no, you know, go off and you know, have a life for a while. And they actually, if not encourage having girlfriends, they don't discourage it. Um, so that would seem to me healthier. Um, but um, I think a lot of these people uh, suffered very badly in their lives. And again, that's not to justify anything that they did, but um, we have to understand that too. Now, you're not writing a tract, though. You're not doing a sort of newspaper article about this. You're, working, you're creating a work of fiction. So tell us about the... I mean, the central character, as I say, Odrun, seems to be somebody who's only partially in life. He seems to... Most of the time he spends avoiding yeah. uh, enjoying or relishing or sampling what life has to offer. Is this a fair comment? And is that what you wanted to do? Yeah, he, he's, he's very passive, and not just with regard to the central issue of the book, but there are things like um, in the opening chapter, it moves around between time, and in the opening chapter, which is in 2001, he gets the first inkling that his sister um, is beginning to show signs of dementia, and his nephew wants to speak to him about this, and he just wants to leave the house. He doesn't want to, to get involved with it. He's, he's, not, he's not a grown-up. You know, he's not able to face the world as an adult at all. In fact, once he's ordained, he doesn't go out in the community helping people. Um, he, he hides away as a chaplain in a school, in a library. There's a lot of, a lot of my books seem to be centered around libraries and um, people who hide out there. I hid out there myself, you know, so much as a kid. Um, and, and that's what he does. I don't think he's able to confront the real world. I don't think he's able to stand up and be a man. You know, he's never learned how to be a man, mm. how to be a grown-up. And he's a kind of a, a pathetic character in that sense because inside him there is decency and kindness and love, but he's just trapped within this impossible personality. Is it difficult artistically to kind of create a character like that but at the same time make him attractive or at least interesting to the reader? You're sort of, you're kind of loading him with all sorts of slightly uncharismatic um, attributes. Yeah. So where do you kind of strike a balance in making the everyday slightly underachieving interesting? I think showing moments of vulnerability is, is the way that you do it. And because the, the book moves around in time, so we start with him as a, in his 50s, we see him as a kid, then we go forward and back. And we see maybe at times the change in his voice um, as he gets older, as he gets more aware, as he's beginning to confront the things that he hasn't confronted before and whether or not he has wasted his life, and whether or not he has contributed to the terrible things that have happened. And the moments of vulnerability, he has two nephews in the book um, who, who both have stories themselves. And he doesn't tell us those stories very early on, and then the reader starts to, to know more about them. And we see a particular moment, I think, where uh, we realize what he feels so guilty about. So you've got to show vulnerability, you've got to show some element of humanity, and um, I'm not trying to... I never really try to make the reader like or dislike somebody. Um, I remember in, in an earlier book of mine, The Absolutist, which is set during the First World War, one thing that was very important to me was that people would get to the end of the book and that they wouldn't quite know where they stood on the central character, that, you know, they'd be so flawed and so um, difficult to read that you might, if you were to discuss it with somebody else, they might um, feel sympathy for him and somebody else might dislike him. And I think it's the same with Odrun because I think it's the same with human beings. We're all capable of great kindness. We're all capable of um, terrible acts. We don't always behave right. We don't always behave wrong. We're all complicated. And fictional characters should be complicated. They shouldn't just be, you know, this is a good guy and this is the bad guy. Now, what about giving us a reading, please, John? Okay, We'd stand like up. To um, this is just a, a short section. It's actually from quite later on in the book. Um, it takes place at the, the time when um, a lot of the trials have started and um, Ireland is coming to terms with uh, all the uh, scandals and the revelations. And Odrin goes into the city centre of Dublin to the four courts to witness a trial taking place. He goes into the trial, he sits there for only a couple of minutes and he just he can't handle it. And so he gets up, he walks out into the round hall and, um, and this is what takes place. 
Despite the number of people lingering under the circular dome, making their way in and out of the other three courtrooms where different cases were being heard, I felt that I could breathe out here. I was not yet ready to make my way through the reporters and photographers who were still gathered outside on Inns Quay, but mercifully were not allowed through the open doors. I made my way to one of the benches by the side and sat down next to a woman on her own, bending over a little with my head in my hands. What kind of life was this, I wondered. To what sort of an organization had I dedicated my life? And even as I searched for blame, I knew that a darkness was stirring inside me concerning my own complicity. For I had seen things, and I had suspected things, and I had turned away from things, and I had done nothing. A hand touched my arm, and I almost jumped off the seat in fright, but it was just the woman seated next to me. She had a tired expression, and not a hint of a smile on her face. I thought she was going to say something like, Are you all right, Father? But instead, she just stared at me. And I knew that I recognized her from somewhere, only I could not say where. You're Father Yates, aren't you? She asked me finally, her voice low and quiet. That's right, I said. Do I know you? You do, she said. Do you not remember me? I shook my head. I do and I don't, I said. You look familiar, but I can't place you. Kathleen Kilduff, she said, and I closed my eyes. We met in Wexford in 1990. You were down visiting your pal. I was the fool who was delivering her son into his hands every week for an hour. I nodded. Of course, I said, I remember you now. And you remember Brian too, don't you? I do, I said, I remember Brian. Did you feel good about yourself, reporting him like you did? You know the guardies scared him half to death, when they interviewed him about the damage he'd done to that monstrous car. I'm sorry, I said. I didn't know what to do at the time. I thought there was something wrong with the boy. I thought that if Tom knew, then maybe he could help him. Oh, he helped him all right, she said, laughing bitterly. So didn't he go to the guardie and tell them that if they just cautioned the boy, then he'd see to it that he never did anything like that again. And then he persuaded me to send Brian into him, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, three days a week, for an hour every time, and of course I did what I was told. Brian, she added, my little lad, who never did a bit of harm to anyone in his life. He wanted to be a vet. Did you know that? He had a little dog that he just adored. I stared down at the floor. When I told that story earlier, when I told you about 1990, did I mention that I had reported what I had seen to Tom the next morning, who had called the guardie in, and I had told them what I had seen, identifying the boy in his own house later that same day? Perhaps I didn't. If I didn't, I should have. Anyway, here it is, out in the open now. We are none of us innocent. Mrs. Kilduff, I said, uncertain what I was going to say next, but she interrupted me anyway. Don't say my name, she hissed, and get off this bench right now. I don't want you sitting anywhere near me. I nodded and stood up, turning to walk away, but before I could, I thought I should at least say something to try to atone for what I had done. I hope Brian is doing all right, I said. I hope he's found a way to cope with whatever happened to him. She stared at me as if I was insulting her. Are you trying to hurt me? She asked. Is that what you're doing? Are you deliberately trying to be cruel? No, I said, failing to understand. I only meant, sure, Brian is dead these last 15 years. He hanged himself in his bedroom. I went up one day after school to fetch him down for his dinner, and there he was, his little legs dancing in the air, the poor dog staring up at him, not knowing what to do. He killed himself. So tell me now, are you proud of yourself, Father? You and your pal in there. Are you proud of yourselves, of all the things you and your pals have done? Do you even care? Now, Odin does go quite far in his profession. Uh, even ending up at HQ for a while. And <laughs> yeah. he seems to assert himself a bit more towards the end of the novel. Do you think he sort of discovers, in the course of the novel, a courage that he lacks at the beginning to, to kind of make a stand at times? Well, I think in conf at the end, because the, we finish right up to date, I think at the end, once he confronts everything, once he's willing to accept his part and his responsibilities, then, yes, he has grown. 
Um, the earlier sections, he, he ends up, um, because it's a novel, he ends up working in the Vatican um, as a young man for a short period of time and um, having some experiences there. And what I wanted there was I needed to get him out of Ireland. You know, mm. I needed to get him out just for a chapter or two to see the world so that you know, he wasn't just locked down in one city in one country all the way. And while there, you know, he falls, he falls romantically for a woman for the first time, so he's not completely you know, a eunuch as such. But um, I, think it's, I think it's with acceptance, with confrontation, with um, recognizing that the people that he loves the most have been damaged and hurt by some of his actions. That's when he grows up, and that's where... And that's where the story has to end. And it's guilt by association we should emphasise, really. But but do you think guilt by association is just as serious as common or garden guilt? Absolutely, without question. I mean, we had um, our our, our cardinal in Ireland for a long time until he retired recently, Cardinal Brady, um, who I I kind of... uh, I, I use in the book, but with a different name, although... For the, for the legal record, it's not based on him at all. Um, <laughs> um, what you said. <laughs> but um, he, he has been very open about the fact that as a young man, as a young priest, he was often a note-taker in meetings where parents would come and say to a bishop, you know, my child has been abused, what are you going to do about it? And the bishops would say, well, that's fine, we'll move the priest from, you know, Wexford to Tipperary or something. Um, and that's the answer. And he was the note-taker. Now, as all these things came out, and as his part in that came out, his point was, look, I was just a priest. I was just taking notes. It wasn't my job to go to the, to the police. Um, that was for somebody else to do. And he stuck to that rigidly. You know, uh, to me, I don't, I don't buy it. You know, if you're aware of a crime going on, you should report it. Mm-hmm. And one of the big problems there was always that the Catholic Church in Ireland always believed that canon law superseded civil law. And it doesn't. It simply doesn't. You know, they... And parents were as much responsible in the sense that they went to the priests and the bishops with their complaints rather than going to the guards. Although, had they gone to the guards, the guards wouldn't have done anything about it anyway. So yes, it's, it's a vicious circle, and it's, it's, it's bewildering, and it's, it's upsetting, and it's just shocking the way that we allowed that to happen. And, um, and it went on and on all the way through, you know, way through into the 90s, way through when I was in school and passed, and it just continued and everybody was afraid to do anything. I remember when, um, you know, I was off school for about two weeks once because I was so badly beaten by a priest. And my parents, who are very loving and very kind people, um, went in and apologized on my behalf um, for what had I done. I had, I had taken the stick with a metal weight that he used to beat us with, and I had passed it down the room. Um, and I ended up in hospital because of it. Mm. And if that happened now... You know, of course, we would all be in there and we would lose our minds, of course. And I don't quite understand why people didn't back then uh, or why people put up with it. I mean, the church, the church controlled the government a lot as well. So, uh, you know, the Justice Department, the Health Department mostly, the Archbishop of Dublin always had a say in who was the health minister because it comes back again to women's health and the empowerment of women uh, or lack thereof. Um, now, the church doesn't have that um, massive empowerment anymore. They don't get to say those things. Um, and I think they realize themselves that it's their, they brought that on themselves. And it is changing, I would say, because after the, refer- I'm sure you know about the referendum we had there a couple of months ago, and the church didn't play a very big part in that referendum, whereas in the past they would have been all over it. Um, and they didn't because I think they had lost all moral authority to speak about anything. But immediately after the result was announced, you know, about five minutes after the polls were closed, the Archbishop of Dublin did come out and say, um, you know, we need to take a look at ourselves here. We need to actually decide what's important as a church and what isn't. I mean, the church was set up in the first place to help people, to help the poor, to, help, to bring kindness, to bring love, to support each other, not to, make, not to dictate how we live our lives, who we should love and who we shouldn't, how we should love. Um, and Pope Francis, I think, is a perfect example of what the church should be about, because he seems to me to be a very honorable fellow, trying to do a good job in an institution which probably wishes that he, you know, that the, you know, the Pope Mobile would crash into an ice cream bus or something, because I th- I'd say they, they sometimes look at him and say, what were we thinking? Um, you know, the old joke of, is the Pope a Catholic? Well, I mean, who knows at this point? 
But it, it's, it does make, it does encourage you, you know, to see somebody like that in such a position who is actually trying to do something. But ironically, given that the heat of your feelings, uh, John, I think some of your most incisive writing in the novel is when you're dealing with the professional, the smooth, the suave princes of the church. I mean, how did you particularly enjoy creating the characters and giving them a spiky dialogue to speak? Yeah, I did, and it's... Um it's something I had to be a little bit careful of in the book because I could fall on t- into old habits. Because yeah. I, I write a lot about power structures. You know, I've written about the Russian Tsar, about Captain Bly, um, you know, about the, the commandant of a concentration camp. And I put innocent people next to positions of power and juxtapose them. I could write a whole novel I knew based in the Vatican and a big drama, lots of fun and excitement and, you know, the murder of, or the death of John Paul I and all that. And I had to be careful, I had to reel myself in and say, stop, stop, because you you'll just go on and on and on. But it's, um, I've always enjoyed putting words into the mouths of real people and reproducing mm-hmm. them on the page. In my first novel, The Thief of Time, 15 years ago, um, I started off in the early chapters with um, bringing Charlie Chaplin in, who I was obsessed with. And the fun I had at just putting words into his mouth and recreating the character um, was amazing. And in this, using John Paul I, John Paul II, and before that, Paul VI, and trying to analyze their characters. I read a lot about them. You know, John Paul II was Pope through most of my life. And, um, and somebody who I think was, you know, ultimately the person who was most responsible for all these things. And... Um, yeah, it was, it was fun and I, I, it was interesting. I had to be careful with John Paul II particularly because if I was to really pull it out there, what I thought of him, he would, it, would just be, it would be tedious for the reader because it would be a, a diatribe. And you can't write a novel that's a diatribe. You know, it, has to be, it has to have some brains to it. It has to have some heart to it and um, not just be not just slam everything. Well, there is anger there, but it's anger that you've kind of passed through a prism of your creative, your artistic decisions as well, presumably. Well, it's controlled, I hope. It's Mm. controlled. Um, And, you know, often with my my books for young people, um, because they're almost always really sad and bad things happen all the time in them, um, kids often ask me, you know, do they they make you cry? And I always say no, because I think the, the writer has to have some distance from the work itself. You have to, you have to look at it you know, like a novel, what's going to work for the story, what's going to work for the characters, not manipulate it, not have something sad just to make somebody cry. It's got to, it's got to work. Not have a horrible character just to have the villain of the piece. Mm. It's got to be authentic. Everything has to feel authentic to it. I mean, and your brilliant use of the dog collar as a metaphor for that loss of moral authority in that the first time, you know, when a, a priest is seen he's immediately fated, he's immediately celebrated, you know, women want to get in cups of tea and things. But after the revelations, a dog collar becomes almost a badge of shame. Yeah. Is, does this actually, has this actually Yeah, I mean, this is now? really, I found this really interesting because, as I said, I spoke to a lot of priests as I was writing it and in advance of it. Um, older priests, younger priests, trying to get some background, you know, trying to find out what it was like. I needed to know stuff about seminary life, for one thing. But a lot of them told me, like, I remember when I was a kid, and I'm sure many of you had these experiences if you grew up in that kind of um, parish or household. Um, Occasionally, you know, the the priest might come for tea. And it was the biggest, you know, the way they always say the queen thinks everywhere smells of new paint. Um, Well, the priest did too, and they were 50% tea, basically, um, because everywhere they went, people were feeding them and drinking them, if that's a word. And um, I remember we, because our, our next-door neighbor was the parish priest, when one of my grandparents died, the priest came in to say a, uh, say a mass in the house for the family. And it was, it was about as big as when the Pope came to visit. You know, I mean, the, the drama that went into it. I, you know, new clothes, I think I had to have a wash. You know, it was... Uh, <laughs> God. <laughs> you know, I was only about eight. And, uh, it, was, it was really <laughs> terrible. Um, but the drama of that. And now, you know... Um, priests were telling me some pretty hor- horrible stories, many of which I put into the book. For example, that a lot of them won't go into the city centre you know, on public transport wearing their, their clerical garb because people will... Um, occasionally, somebody might spit at them. Or if they're walking down a street, you know, some teenager is going to whisper or mutter pedophile at them. Um, 
the house next door is still the parish priest's house, and the, the parish priest now told me that um, if a child knocked on his front door and there was blood pouring down his face and his arm was hanging off and had been badly beaten, the first thing he would do is close the door in that child's face because he could not take the chance. He said, I'd close the door and I'd phone your mum you know, to make sure there was somebody else there. And that's a tragic state of affairs. Um, another priest told me that he was coming out of his sacristy one time and there was, um, there was like a, a bathroom in there. And somebody had sent their little boy, about, about four years old, in to use the bathroom. And when the priest came out, the little boy, only, as I say, three or four years old, was, had his pants down and asked him you know, to help him sort himself out or whatever. And the priest practically ran screaming, as you would, from the church mm. because... You know, to be in that kind of vulnerable position. And again, it's tragic. And there's a scene in the book. One of the first scenes I thought of in the book was, uh, and it's a very important scene where Odrin is in city centre of Dublin in a department store. And he sees a child on his own, crying, lost his mother. And he goes over to see, can he help him? And takes him, but the kid says, my mum went out the door onto the street. So he takes him by the hand. And I think the reader was saying, oh, don't take him by the hand. Don't take him. And he goes through the door and you're going, no, don't, don't, don't go through the door. And suddenly you have a priest and a small child who's crying, walking down the street. And, you know, the world descends on them and everything goes black. And you can't help people anymore. And I think that's not even true of just priests. That's true of people in real life. You know, you, you have to be very, very careful of those things. It's a whole separate thing, but because of the... Um, with all the children's books I write, for example, I have this rule that if somebody contacts me, you know, on social media or something with a question, you know, they usually contact me to do their homework for them. But um, <laughs> if they contact me with a question, I will often answer it, but I will never answer a reply. You know, I will shut it down then no matter what, because it's just too risky. So simple acts of human kindness now have become corrupted and mired in yeah. suspicion. Yeah. And people, I mean, younger priests who have done nothing, um, done nothing at all uh, will, be, will be tarred with the same brush and there's a tragedy to that there's a sadness to that but you reap what you sow as well and um, in, in my lifetime that's not going to change because there'll still be all of us who remember the things that happened but then that will change You know, I mean, a couple of hundred years ago it would have been the Spanish Inquisition or something, N- now it was this but I mean do you think that Ireland as a result of the, the loss of the Catholic Church is one you know, strong moral authority. Do you think Ireland has grown up, has matured into, has lost its sort of slightly infantilized relationship with the Catholic Church? Has it, have they become much more equal now, or has Ireland asserted itself in a sort of secular way, do you think? I think Ireland is probably right now um, a, you know, a cranky teenager mm-hmm. um, rebelling against... Um, Regaling against the father figure, you know, the the reason that seventy percent um, of Ireland came out to vote in that referendum, and sixty percent of that seventy percent voted yes, was, you know, two fingers up to the church. Um, people were coming in from coming back from Australia, from America, to just cast one vote. They were coming in on the bus load, on the boat load. It was like the famine the other way around, and um, I think. It's still there, though, because, I mean, I have many friends, say, of my age, who will have children, and they, uh, the, ch- the church still controls a lot of the schools, and you can't get into a church, a, school, a Catholic school, unless you're baptized, and then they have to go to Mass and all that type of thing. And you know that, they, and they make their communion, and they make their confirmation. And I say to my friends, you know, well, you know, you don't believe in the tenets of the Catholic Church, you don't live your life by those tenets, and yet you tell your children to go somewhere where they're going to be told those things. Why? And they will say to me, and it's, it's such an easy answer for them, is you don't understand because you don't have children. And it's, you know, I, I, I don't get it. I don't get it at all. I mean, it's... I don't know. It baffles me. Well, presumably, what is it the sort of standard of education that they're looking for? The parents, I mean, in terms of sending their children... No, it's to just that most of the schools are still run by by orders of priests, yeah. the majority of them. But did that make them better schools? It's often said that the discipline and the achievement... I, and well, the... I guess. I mean, the, the, the private schools, the ones you have to pay for, certainly mm. would all be... And it's a status symbol, isn't it, I suppose, to send your children to... You know, my father grew up in a tenement in the centre of Dublin, and he sent all four of his children to private school and to university. And it says something about how you've... Mm. 
how your life has been, you know, if you've succeeded, if, if that's the way you judge success. So, um, so that's, that's definitely still there. I mean, as a, do you look back on your days as the sort of principal altar boy? Do you, with regret or nostalgia or affection or well, if only I'd known what was going on? Here, here's the funny thing. I absolutely loved it. <laughs> no, I, I, had a, I mean, I had, a, I had a wonderful childhood, absolutely wonderful childhood. And one of the things I liked best about the parish I grew up in and being in the altar boys and everything was the sense of belonging, the sense of being part of something, part of a community. Um, you know, it might sound silly, but I used to look, I used to love, you know, at seven, eight, nine years old, I used to love Easter and Christmas because there'd be all the, the special fancy masses and things and you'd have to come and rehearse for them like you were on a stage. I think I was always, you know, sort of theatrical maybe. Yeah. And, um, I really felt like I belonged to something. And I think a lot of people felt that. And then so that when you got older, and when you looked at, say, certain things that might have happened to you, to your friends, and to strangers, all those wonderful memories got corrupted and tarnished. And you remembered things that at the time you thought were just, that's just life, that's what happens. And you think, no, that's not life, that's not what's supposed to happen. That should never have happened. Um, so it, it tarnishes it in that way. But at the time, it was, it was great. I mean, I remember in school there was... There was priests who were, who were well-known for being abusers. Um, and I remember being 13, 14. And you knew if, if somebody had been brought to that priest's office and something had happened, what did you do? You laughed. You teased the person about it. You didn't think there was anything wrong with it. You know, now, of course, you know, if a teacher even looks at a kid sideways, the kid will probably bunch them in the face. But in those days, we thought it was funny. Mm. You know, and... Um, because we, we knew who the, the perpetrators were, didn't but they were, we? But they were, they were so in control. They were so in authority. I don't remember being as frightened of anybody or as in awe of anybody as, as a priest. Um, or maybe a nun. They were even worse. <laughs> um, no, no, the nuns were okay, actually. The AP side us were all right. But um, most of them. Although once I had to... I remember having, I used to have to cut the lawn for them. And um, there was an eclipse of the... This sounds like I'm just pulling out all my bad stories, but <laughs> this one's kind of funny. Um, there was an e- eclipse of the sun, and uh, you know the way you're not supposed to look up at the sun when there's an eclipse? And I'd stopped the lawnmower and was looking up, and I heard these footsteps. I'm coming out of the house, running towards me, you know, nun's outfit, whatever it's called, blowing in the Habit. wind. It was a nun, and she just... <laughs> knocked me out across the thing and said, you'll go blind, you'll go blind. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she nearly knocked one of my eyes out and she did it, which would have probably done it if else had. And um, <laughs> so, you know, and it was, I mean, it's funny, but it wasn't really right either. But it's not, you know, I'm not traumatized by that. But, uh, so is this, so is this your island novel or will you have other No, I'm, I'm, I'm in it now for the long haul. I, I waited all these 15 years to write one and uh, I'm writing another one at the moment. Um, which is actually kind of funny. Uh, and most of my books aren't funny. They're usually about you know, lonely, miserable men who are all on their own and never find anybody and then kill themselves at the end. But uh, <laughs> um, they do say people tend to write the same book over and over. You know? so, but I'm writing one at the moment, which um, I thought was going to be one of those. And actually, it's just it's full of jokes, which is new for me. Um, and I'm, I'm really enjoying writing it, though. It's mm-hmm. really fun to write it. Um, but it takes place in Ireland between 1945 and 2015. So a good, a good chunk of... Irish mm-hmm. history, contemporary Irish history. There are lots, lots to write about there. Yeah. Anyway, I think it's high time. We had some questions from our audience. I don't know if anybody in priestly garb. I can't see any <laughs> wimples or habits out there. We shall soon find out. Now, who's going to be the first to ask a question? I see a hand up there, and the microphone is racing its way to you somewhere. Here we are. Hi. Um, I, I'm halfway through... <laughs> Your book, and I think it, it's stunning. It's just it's it's a superb piece, but I'm also aware that there's a number of younger uh, fans of yours here, and I wonder if you could just spend a few moments talking about your book. Stay, stay where you are, then leave. Sure. Yeah, that was uh, my fourth book for young people, set during the First World War. Um, I'm very interested, as you could probably guess, in the um, experience of war relating to childhood, how children suffer from war and the roles that they play in it. Um, and in all my books for young people, I tend to you know, get the adults out of the story quite early on. I liked the idea in Stay Where You Are of a young boy who's, you know, if his father goes off to war, the First World War, his mother's working as a nurse all day long, and he has to cope on his own. You know, and he goes off in his shining shoes and 
trying to make money and hearing all the stories from soldiers at the train station and parents as injured soldiers return. Um, I like giving children independence in books. That's what I liked when I was a kid. Uh, I like them being optimistic and resourceful and brave and being able to solve the problems without an adult coming along to do it. And the first row, I, mean, I mentioned my adult novel, The Absolutist, earlier. Stay Where You Are is related to that in some ways. There's a, some recurring characters. And, um, you know, the issue of shell shock, it's, it's a historical novel in its way, but all the best historical novels have to have a contemporary resonance. And the issues of shell shock, you know, are seen in post-traumatic stress disorder today. Um, and I wanted to pick up on that a bit. Um, and the treatment of soldiers who come back from wars in, in, um, in Stay Where You Are when they when they first see a, a man who comes back really traumatized. Um, it's probably not that different than the way they often treat people coming back today. Um, so that's really where it came from. Thank you very much. There's a young man oh, over there. Yes. Here comes a microphone. All the way around, I'm afraid. Gentleman at the end here. Will you be making any more um, like new children's book or any more other adult books up? except for the one you've been talking about? Well, it's, it's uh, funny you should ask, because, uh, yeah, there's a new children's book called um, The Boy at the Top of the Mountain, which is published on the 1st of October. And um, it's uh, just for a change, it's a war story. Um, <laughs> um, it's about a nine-year-old orphan called Piero, who's French, um, who goes to live with his aunt, who is a housekeeper uh, at the top of a mountain um, near Berchtesgarten in Austria. And... Um, the housekeeper is the house is the mountainside retreat of Adolf Hitler, and he goes to live there through the war and observes Hitler and the the man, all all the meetings that take place there and the manner um, in which the war is developed from there. And its 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 main theme is brainwashing. How easy it is to go from being a kind, decent young person to being completely inculcated into, in this case, the, the Nazi ideals. Do you kind of? Uh get into your sort of teenage soul, if there's anything left of your teenage them, uh, John, when you're writing your books for young adults, do you kind of switch into, you know, adolescent mode? Um, I, I like to think there's still, you know, you know youthful <laughs> elements to my character. Um, it's, you know, it's not that diff- different, the writing of one from the other. Um, and the, the process that I use in those young people's books, you know, the adult books are always first-person novels. I feel I need to get as deeply inside a psychology as possible. And the young people's books are always third person. It's kind of an omniscient narrator. The child, while, as I said, is resourceful and everything, is not always that smart. And the reader is always one step ahead and knows, with the benefit of history and so on, what's going on. But you tend to cheer that child on. Um, I'm a big um, advocate that, you know, of, of heroes in young people's fiction, people that you should that young people read that should be, they should be uplifted by, you know, not, um, you know, there was that book a couple of year ago, so uh, Kevin Brooks won the Carnegie Medal for it, The Bunker Diary, which a lot of people complained about and said it was so depressing and why do we, why do we throw this filth at our kids and everything. But the central character of that was one of the most kindest, decentest, optimistic, resourceful characters I've ever read in young people's fiction. And it was exactly the kind of book I think kids should read. I really enjoy it, you know, and the bouncing back and forth between the two is very important to me. And um, I think it helps me as an adult writer and it helps me as a young people's writer. Do you sort of, uh, do you choose vocabulary that is more suitable to a younger audience or something? No, I don't. And you don't differentiate at all? I don't. I I remember going into a school um, where, with my second kid's book, where the teacher had um, set, a process, uh, set a project for the kids when they were reading it to write down all the words that they didn't understand. And to my delight, that list was quite long. And I thought, well, that's fine. Look them up. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's a dictionary. Yes, look them should. up. <laughs> and um, that's why I, I, I don't think you should talk down to children in books. You should treat them with respect, treat them... Um, I don't want to frighten them. You know, in the frightening, in things like striped pajamas and so on, whenever anything terrible happens, Bruno can't put it into words. And that makes it more frightening. You know, I don't want to put graphic stuff on the page um, in, in either adult books or children's books. You know, I don't, um, I don't really do that. And, uh, but I don't think the language, I don't think the sentence structure, the process is any different for me. Mm, now, any other further questions? Yes, a hand up here. Here comes the microphone. Yes, sir. 
Do you think, John, it was a step too far to take your man Odrin to the Vatican? I mean, I, I ask this because this is a very important book about a very important subject. And it's something, you know, the, the Vatican episode seems a bit preposterous, or will seem to many people. And it might be a vehicle for them to pour scorn on the rest of the novel, which, as I say, is, you know, really important in the context of today, in the context of Ireland, and in the context of Scotland, where only this week we've had the McClellan report on clerical abuse in the Catholic Church. Yeah, I'll give you a completely honest answer to that, which is, um, I think of all the different parts of the book, it's probably the least successful part. Um, and I mentioned earlier that it's, uh, I had to reel myself in when I was writing it because I was going in a different direction, and, um, which wasn't the right direction for the book. But I, I, did, like, I did need him outside Ireland, and I did need him to have some type of um, you know, crush on somebody to show that he wasn't just you know, totally asexual. Um, and I wanted him to get involved in some type of power structure to show that he was at the bottom of the, the ladder and how the people at the top acted. Because people always say about this subject, you know, well, all this, this went all the way to the top. But people forget, yes, but it also went all the way to the bottom. It went down to the, just the, the simple young priest. Um, it's, it's not the best part of the book, I would say. But I think, I think it works okay. I think it's, it's fine. And, but I think the surrounding stuff is more, um, works better. How has the book been reviewed by, I don't know, Catholic reviewers or Catholic critics? Well, there was, there was an article in the Irish Times where a priest wrote, um, and he asked everybody to pray for me. Um, <laughs> and and uh, actually, it did, more, it did more help than anything. It was very good. A lot of people reacted to it and, I guess, prayed for me. Um, it, was, it was very well received. I was, I was very happy about it. And uh, I, I think a lot of people picked up on the fact that, you know, weirdly enough, Irish writers haven't approached this subject. And my generation, I've been writing about, everybody's writing about the banks and the recession, you know. Um, and this is a big subject. This is the biggest subject in Irish history over the last 50, 60 years, with the exception, I suppose, of, of the Troubles and everything. And it seems strange to me that it's not being explored more deeply. Um, but it, it got a very positive response. Yeah. Good, good. Any other questions? Yes, a hand up, a hand up here. And a man down there as well. Gentleman here. You're getting a lot of exercise tonight. Mm. Oh, no, you're gone. Yes, here we are. Pass along the mic. Thank you very yeah. much. And then the next one, there's a man down there as well, so you can get it down well in the meantime, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering, when you look at today and what's happening in the Middle East, um, and religion being hijacked in the Middle East, Middle East, arguably, and the development of, of a moral or immoral authority... What do you think about that? Do you think it's the same old, same old, or do you see different angles on that than you have in the past? Um, you know, it's a, it's a tricky one because I, I find sometimes that um, if you don't know enough about a subject, maybe you, should, you shouldn't really speak about it. And like as a comparison, I remember a lot of the time with striped pajamas, interviewers, particularly in the States, would ask me questions about the Arabs and the the Israelis and the Palestinians and everything. And, you know, I thought, you know, I don't really... I'm not as well-informed on the subject, so it's probably best not to say anything. But um, I, I think, historically, religion has been used as, as, a, as something from which wars are... Uh, or for which wars are fought, from the Crusades up. And it doesn't seem to me that that's what the basis of religion or churches should be. Uh, you know, why something which is founded in love should always lead to such... Antagonism, such anger is, uh, it, you know, I mean, living, it's so simplistic. But, you know, I, I'm not religious at all, you see. And maybe it was, you know, literally knocked out of me over all those years. But I don't have any, I don't have any faith in anything. And um, sometimes I kind of wish I did. Sometimes I wish I, sometimes, you know, if I go to a, a, a wedding or a funeral or something, and you're sitting in the church and it takes you back to childhood and you think, you know, I kind of miss it in one way, but I'd be, there's no point in me coming here every Sunday because I don't believe in any of it. This isn't really answering your question at all, but um, yeah, you know, it, it just doesn't play that part in my life. And all the wars that go on over it, I just, 
I don't know, it just passes me by somehow. Don't you have faith in literature, art? Oh, yeah, no, I meant in faith in, like, you know, religious... Oh, right, uh, so yeah, religious no, I, meant, I meant that, yeah, yeah. Good. Thank you. Now, you saw there was another hand up at the yeah, back he has somewhere. A, he has a mic yeah. there. Hi, hi John, um, the former altar boy uh, here, which is the Formation and Support Group, I think. But um, can I just ask about... <laughs> you know, I thought you were going to say, I'm your former maths teacher. Or yeah. <laughs> and I was going to go, what? The what? Really? Uh, no, I don't think so. But um, I was just going to ask, you seem to have a great faith in young people and a great faith in, in children, which is really refreshing to hear. Can I just ask you about the challenge of being a novelist in the digital age, the social media age, and how you're finding that? Because some people can be very, very negative about you, but young people and their, and their open-mindedness to literature. Well, when I first started working in children's literature 10 years ago and started going into schools and children's festivals, the thing that surprised me was that everybody told me that I'd heard that children don't read anymore. And nothing could be further from the truth. Children read all the time. What it is is they don't have a very long attention span, so you have to grab them quickly. Otherwise, they'll put the book down and move on to something else. But, and that's why there are so many series of books. And I'm not a fan of series of books. But in, in children's and young, young adult, publishers love them because... You know, you can brand it and they'll keep selling them. Um, I prefer standalone novels. But as long as kids get books that they are interested in, that speak to them in some way with characters, they will, they will stick with it. The big challenge we always have in children's and YA is that girls continue to read and boys stop. Boys stop around 12 for some reason. And girls don't. Um, and I write primarily um, male characters in my books for young people. And... Um, I've never written a book with a, a girl at the centre of it. And one of my goals is kind of to get kids to keep, get boys particularly, to keep reading um, as much as possible. But it's, it's just the attention span thing. Once they have books they like, they'll be all over it. And it, things are better now in the sense that when I was a kid in school, for example, um, we, everything we studied was, I mean, there were wonderful books, but all the authors were dead. And now, you know, most of the authors are alive or seemed alive. And, you, you know, there's, there's a big thing about going into schools and the Federation of Children's Book Groups, you know, do wonderful work. You know, I bring out a new kid's book. I'll, I'll spend a week or two going around in and out of schools, three a day or something exhausting, um, but rewarding as well. You know, and you might only sell about 20 books in there, but you get them reading. And because I'm an adult novelist as well, I want them to grow up and read my adult books then. You know, <laughs> you know what, I really, what really bothers me is when, novelists, when adult novelists make disparaging comments about it. Like Martin Amos a few years ago, you might recall, said that um, the only thing that would bring him to write a, a book for kids uh, would be if he had a, a frontal lobotomy. And you know, what baffled me about that was that every writer, and I bet everybody in this room, by the nature of your being here, is here because we were all given books as kids, because our parents or our teachers or somebody gave us books, and we got interested in books, and that stayed with us and has been an important part of our lives. And um, when adult writers disparage that, I, I, I always question, think back to your childhood. Think, think back how important books were for you. Um, and they don't get the, the recognition. They don't get as much review coverage. And they should. And we are, it's often said we're living in a golden age of children's writing. And we absolutely are. There are magnificent writers out there for young people who are every bit as good as their, their peers on the adult side. Uh, any other? Yes, hand up here. And then the gentleman at the back. So you'd like to keep your hand up, madam. And hopefully the mic's on its way to you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Um, returning a bit to, to history of loneliness again. Um, you talk about how you are quite angry and that comes across quite clearly as well, I suppose, when you go into these topics. Did you feel a need to sort of deal with it? And the way you did that was through your book. Um, personally, not as a kind of a social phenomenon, but just you personally as yeah, a raised Catholic. Did you mm. feel a need to, to have to kind of deal with it for your generation, I suppose? Um, well, I know that if I was to go back maybe seven, eight, nine years, uh, I, could never have written, I could never have written this book. You know, it would have been the opposite of what it is. It would have just been a rant. Um, I couldn't have done it. I had so much anger. And I did not want to be somebody who was defined by anger. You know, I thought that is the final victory of abusers and bullies if, if they ruin your life, if they destroy you. And I wasn't willing to give anybody that, that power. Um, and I think as I became more adult, as my... I'd say, you know, the thing that writing is so important to me. Books are so important. And the feeling I get when I write just gives me my sense of self. 
and with a little bit of success in it, I think a point came where I felt, you know, I can write about this and write about it hope in the way that I hope correctly. You know, that it, would, it will not be just a rant. I remember thinking at the start that one thing that was important to me was that all those people who constantly condemn the church all the time would recognize that there are people who have tried to do their best and there are still. And all those people who defend the church against all comers would recognize what they have been responsible for. That it is, it is not, it's not just a black and white thing. That there's all sorts of middle ground stories, like I mentioned earlier, about the childhoods and the childhood experiences of many of these young men who went into seminaries at a time where they should not have been anywhere near a seminary. And um, I think confronting that and talking about that and trying to feel understanding of something which had in the past um, I had only filled me with loathing was, was good for me as a person. It was cathartic. But more importantly, I think it produced the book that I wanted to write. Thank you. Now, hand up behind there, wasn't there? Yeah, I just um, inquire, when you're starting to write your books, do you start with um, an idea or do you go for the characters? What's the, what's the, the genesis, if you like? Of it's, it's generally just a very basic idea. I don't plot them out. I did my first few novels. I used to plot them out scene by scene, chapter by chapter. And I think when you're a young writer, when you're starting out, the, the most important thing is finishing the thing. And if you have a plan, you're more likely to finish it. But once you get more experienced and more confident, you can kind of take that safety net away. Um, so I start with, like, as I mentioned with this, it was just that scene that my father told me. And it was also the scene, the idea of that department store, of a priest taking a boy by the hand. Um, I start with something like that. And I don't want to know anything else. You know, I just, I just want to start with that and let the story develop itself and the characters develop themselves. And, and, and sometimes you'll write huge amounts that are just not part, they shouldn't be there at all and you get rid of them and it goes in weird directions but you, find, you don't know what your novel is about until you finish that first draft you think you do, but actually you, you start off with one thing in mind and by the end of it you realise it's something else entirely like I mentioned earlier, that I thought I was going to be writing about a very good, decent person um, and actually he became a very complicit person, and as I started the rewrites then, the second, third, fourth drafts um, I had to bear that in mind, that, and I had to bring that more into his character to make it clear from the start. For example, I mentioned that in the opening chapter, that moment with his sister, that wasn't there in the opening, in the first draft. It came in subsequent drafts because I wanted to kind of foreshadow the fact that actually he's, he's, he's not willing to confront things, he, he hides away from it, he pretends not to see, he's complicit in everything. Um, so that's, that's generally my process. Well, any, uh, yes? Oh, hello. <laughs> hello. Yes. Um, <laughs> can we get a microphone to you? Save your voice. <laughs> there we are. Oh, I'm going to get a telling off now. No, uh, no, not at all. I, I think uh, what you've said about Odrin is exactly how I read him. I've read it twice, and I've only been able to find two bits where he where I could draw the parallel with um, the denials. Did you deliberately do that, that he denied? He denies that he knew anything. Well, not that he didn't oh, know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the court bit, for the example. The court bit, yeah. Yeah, he, and there was yeah. another bit. And I, I've, I've read it twice because I thought, is it going to come three times and the cock will crow? Sorry, I'm not being... No, no, you're I'm not going too far, but did you deliberately do that? I did, yeah, I did. And it, it, it also picks up on something that happens in um, Striped Pajamas when uh, Bruno denies his friendship with Shmuel twice. Um, but not a third time, because I don't want to make it too obvious. Um, but, you know, loyalty and friendship is something that comes up again and again in all of my books, both the, the ones for, you know, big people and small people. And there's always a moment of betrayal. There's always a moment where uh, the character will put themselves first and will deny their friendship with somebody. And, um, you know, Bruno does that in, in, the, in, the, in the kitchen when Lieutenant Kotler is there, and Odin does it on the street, um, with his lifelong friend because this crowd is baying for blood and they're looking for somebody to blame and it's, it's easier to attack the man on the street than the man in the dock. Well, I'm afraid here endeth the first lesson, <laughs> John. 
Uh, John will be signing copies of his books in the main bookshop, which is just out that door. Turn left, and it's just left again. And don't worry, John, we shall pray for bumper sales for you. <laughs> Won't we, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you. Please join me in thanking John Boyd. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.